encourage you to grab your Bible this morning. Exodus chapter 13. And I'm going to admit on the front end that this was kind of one of those uh, those weeks of preparation where I had a lot of aha moments. And for me, um, and maybe it's not going to be the same for you, Matt, Matt Anderson kind of posted or uh, liked a comment of somebody that, where I said, maybe it's just me that likes these things. And Matt goes, yeah, maybe it is just you. <laughs> um, but the reality is I, I am excited about, as you open up Scripture and you start reading it from beginning to end, how you, you can really see God is doing this revelation. And there's these, these shadowy pictures of Christ that we see in the Old Testament. And these shadowy pictures become more and more real as revelation, this biblical revelation goes on. And we see its culmination in Jesus Christ. And then we see its final culmination at the very end. And for me, this week is one of those weeks where it's like, I'm going, how in the world did I miss this? How have I not seen these things? So if I get more excited about it than you, just be excited that your pastor loves Scripture and he loves these aha moments. But I pray the same is going to be true for you. So before, uh, let's, let's read together and then let's pray over reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 13, page 55, 1 through 16. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today is the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male, shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time, and when in time to come, your son asks you, what 
does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both firstborn of man and firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a mark on your hand or frontless between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, your word. Lord, you, you, you gave life to us, and you continue to, to speak into us through your holy word. So Father God, I pray this morning that you open our hearts, you open our ears, you open our eyes to receive all the goodness that you have for us this morning. And Father God, I pray that your spirit this morning would work in a powerful way, not only through me, Lord, to, to faithfully bring the word as, as has been received from generation to generation to generation, but Lord, I pray that your spirit would work powerfully in us as a congregation. That these are not just words that bounce and ping off of our hearts and our minds, but Lord, that they deeply penetrate and take root so that by your Spirit we are changed. Use us this morning, Lord. Use your word, the ministry of the word, to change our hearts, our minds, our families, our community, and our world for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a practical blessing uh, from an appreciation of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that we realize our wonderful heritage that we truly have. When we really read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, all the way to the book of Malachi, and we really read and begin to understand what is going on historically, and then we read the New Testament, and we find ourselves in that place. We find that we have a wonderful heritage. Some of you have great family pride. Great family pride. You can look back and say, man, look at my family. Look at these people. Look at what we do. Look at what we've done, done in the past. Look at what we're doing now. We've got great family pride. But this is far deeper and richer. It is a spiritual heritage that comes from the Lord that goes all the way back to the beginning of time, we can trace our lineage, our spiritual lineage back, and there is a beauty in that kind of heritage. And this should serve us well to realize that we are part of something hugely, eternally significant. It's more than just temporal. This is something eternal, and it's significant. God has had a plan in eternity past, and he has been working that plan out ever since he said, let there be light. Ever since then, God has been working out this plan. Part of that plan had to do with the people called the children of Israel, a people which God chose to be his firstborn, his people. It was through this nation that our Savior, Jesus Christ, would one day come to live and to die to justify believers. Therefore, whatever happened in their history is of enormous significance 
for you and me today. Not the least of which were the events that we've been studying concerning the Passover, an event which happened some three and a half millennia ago. In that event, the Lord prescribed and accepted and supplied a substitute in the place of the firstborn, which He decreed that He would kill. The children of Israel sacrificed an a perfect, unblemished lamb, painted the blood on their doorposts, and with the result, God passed over them in His wrath. God passed over them. And they were covered by the blood, and therefore they were delivered, they were rescued, and in the Word, they were redeemed. They were redeemed. And this, of course, points to this coming reality that one day, the Lamb of God, would come and take away the sin of the world by the work of redemption. It's a Christian word that we use a lot, right? Redemption. Or I've been redeemed. Those are great words, but do we really understand what it means? Because redemption is a vital word in Scripture, for redemption is the work of our Savior. It is what He has done for you, for me, for us corporately. In fact, it can be fairly stated that redemption is the overriding theme of Scripture. God's redemption of His people in the establishment of His kingdom for His glory. That's the overriding theme. God is redeeming His people. The word redeem or redemption can be defined as a payment according to law to buy back something that must be delivered or rescued. Let me say it again. It's a payment according to law to buy back something which must be delivered or rescued. Simply put, redemption is the act of deliverance through the payment of the, a full price. There, there's no bartering there's no talking down the price. The full price must be paid for this, for a purchase to be made. And this is precisely what Jesus Christ did for sinners. He paid the full price to redeem us, to bring us back, to rescue us from the wrath of God. The first biblical reference of this word is found in Exodus. Not in Genesis, not in the New Testament, but it's found in Exodus where it occurs four times in chapter 6, in chapter 13, twice, and in chapter uh, 34. You see it in there. And in this first reference, here it is where it's found in verse 6, verse 6. God says, therefore, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the burden of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I am going to redeem, I am going to redeem you. Again, this biblical theme of redemption is introduced here in Exodus 13 in such a way that we see that there's a connection between the redemptive act, the setting apart of a firstborn, and the act of deliverance of the people from Israel, the Passover, by the use of the word redeem. 
It's a word used throughout the Bible to refer to God's act of salvation. For example, Deuteronomy 7. Listen to this, of how redeemed is used. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Or Deuteronomy 13. And this is kind of on a a negative end. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord commanded you to walk. So you shall purge evil from amongst your midst. I redeemed you? You are mine? Anybody who is going to be violating that redemption deserves what? Death. How do you like that? So if there's any... That's why even in the New Testament, there are very strong words that Paul gives to the elders, the Ephesians elder, Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, where he says, I, I want you to be fully aware that there are going to be people coming in, and there's even those inside who are going to be wreaking havoc. They're going to be destroying the flock that's among you. And so the elders need to be watchful because this is the redeemed family that God has purchased with the full price of the blood of Jesus Christ to save them from the wrath of God. So you be watchful from outsiders and insiders. Watch. This is the redeemed body, the redeemed family. So in sum, the connection between the two issues is that celebration of salvation calls forth a consecration of that salvation. Celebration of salvation calls forth a a consecration. So in other words, those whom God saves are to serve. Hear that? Those whom God delivers are to deliver. And those whom God are passed over by God are thus passed over to God, are set aside to God. In this chapter, the Lord is saying to Israel loud and clear, I will save you, and you will serve me. I will save you. And you will serve me. So as we begin this study in chapter 13, my desire is to show you how these two issues are connected and then for us to make these connections between what happened to Israel as God brought them out of Egypt with what God has done for us in Christ concerning our exodus from sin. So hold on. Okay? The first thing, I see about five things. First of all, there is a very costly command. A costly command. This passage uh, simply states, this command simply states that the firstborn of man and beast throughout Israel must be consecrated, must be set aside to God because of the way that God delivered Israel's firstborn in the final plague. So since I have done this for you, you must do this for me. Since I passed over you, this one must be consecrated to me. 
You see this in verses 1 through 3, in verse 8, and then 11 through 15. I'll just read a few of it. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. How many? All. All the firstborn. Whether, whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. The firstborn is to be set aside as mine. It's a sign and a symbol, a constant reminder of what God has done in that final plague. I passed over, therefore you will set aside one for me. Every firstborn. Exodus 13.8 So you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Israel. So the explanation starts coming. So we're setting aside the firstborn, both man and beast, setting aside to the Lord. Why? Because this is what the Lord did for me. This is what He did for me. And so it, it keeps on going. You can read more, 11 through 15. They needed, Israel need, needed to learn, and we need to also learn that redemption has costs. On both sides of the equation. God told the people to consecrate or to set apart their firstborn. One commentator observes that we can translate this verbiage to consecrate as to make them pass over, i.e. by fire, and that we should understand the meaning as to offer up as a whole burnt offering. This would have created a lot of confusion for the people, right? Okay, so you, basically, that, the language of that day was saying the command could be interpreted as uh, the concept of passing this firstborn over to the Lord in such a way that they would be devoted to the Lord. And since this terminology literally meant for them devoted to destruction, that they're set apart for destruction, this commandment would have been interpreted in light of the Tenth Commandment. Okay, so you saved me to destruction? You saved me so that my firstborn child would be set apart to a whole burnt offering? A, a sacrifice? God, that doesn't really make sense. In other words, just as the firstborn was destroyed in Egypt, just as the lambs had been slaughtered, the firstborn lamb, perfect spotless lamb, so too this command may have been heard in that context in their mind. Could you imagine the fear that you would have heard? God, you took me out of Egypt. We, we've been delivered by your great hand, by mighty acts of judgment. Now you want me to, my firstborn child, to be set apart in the same way for destruction? They're hearing the one who has delivered us, his firstborn, us, we are called his firstborn is now saying that He will destroy our firstborn. It doesn't make sense that on the one hand, God, Yahweh, God, delivered us, and then on the other, He destroys us. So what do we make of this? Well, clearly, from recorded history that follows, God did not, in fact, destroy Israelite firstborns, right? Instead, he was highlighting the need for a substitute. 
highlighting a need for a substitute. He was highlighting that deliverance does not come cheaply. But furthermore, the children of Israel needed to learn that they were two sinners who deserved destruction. That is, in verses 11 through 13, highlight, they too were unclean. The comparison between the firstborn child to a donkey firstborn is hardly flattering. You're putting my firstborn child, my beautiful baby, have you seen the golden locks? They're absolutely gorgeous. And you're comparing it to a stinking donkey? And on top of that, according to Scripture, a donkey is an unclean animal. An unclean, so you're calling my child, my beautiful firstborn child, an unclean object. They were unclean. The donkeys were unclean. God's saying, listen, I'm putting you in the same category as donkeys. And the children of Israel were later forbidden by law to either sacrifice or to eat donkeys. So it's like, listen, those are unclean animals, but I'm putting your children, your firstborn, your precious ones, in that same category as unclean. Firstborn of the donkey, to have its life spared, as brutal as it seems, was to have its neck broken, to be redeemed. Or it could be saved by a sacrifice of a lamb. It's a reminder, right? A sacrifice must be made. There must be a substitute. And it's a reminder that we always need to remember as well. There is a substitute. There is another one. I am imperfect. I am unclean. I am in need of a other. I need a substitute. The point God is making to His firstborn Israel was that they were unclean. And yet, He was willing to spare them. Your neck deserves to be broken, Israel. But I love you. And I will redeem you. But also another note, another truth is that redemption only applied to the firstborn. Did you notice that? Man, if you were number two, Lillian, you got off the hook. But of course you're female, so it doesn't really matter. So the first, how many firstborn males do we have in this? Firstborn males, only firstborn males, yeah. You deserve death unless there was a sacrifice made to you. This paves a way for another big, big connection. Note that God's judgment or destruction was upon the Egyptians' firstborn. And deliverance was focused on Israel's firstborn. This passing over was solely related to the firstborn. The principle of the redemption... Rather than destruction, the principle was of the firstborn was to be a continual theme. A continual theme in the life of Israel. Firstborn was a marker, a, wa- a waving flag of pay attention here. The firstborn. And as we get into the New Testament, you start hearing those themes of the firstborn of all creation. Who, who, is, who is he talking about there? Jesus. 
So there's these beautiful connections between the redemption that has to take place here for the firstborn of Israel, the firstborn of your families, the firstborn, uh, anything that opens the womb must be redeemed. And then there's this firstborn of all creation who does the redeeming. I'm getting ahead. So here, the sacrificial system, which was soon to be implemented, was a reminder, a reminder that a substitute needed to be killed in the place of the firstborn if that firstborn was going to be saved. That is why redemption played such a huge role in the life of the nation of Israel. The principle of redemption of the firstborn played was a huge thing in the very psyche of the children of Israel. It, it was in their DNA. They Constantly was thinking about the firstborn. And here's where I started getting geeky, even more so. God, in his providential hand, would later designate the Levitical priesthood as a substitute for the firstborn. We see this in Numbers 3 and Numbers 8. Listen to this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levite from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On that day, on that day, I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And then, from uh, Numbers 8. And I have taken the Levites instead of the firstborn among the people of Israel. So God's going, okay, instead of your firstborn son, I am now setting apart these group, this group of people. And so what, it, what it, this did was to redeem the firstborn by priesthood. And I hope that you're, some of you are starting to get this this trail, this connection. Clearly, this is what, the, what Jesus Christ has done for us. That is, all those who will be saved will be saved because God chose us as His firstborn and this comes to pass through His firstborn paying the redemption price and being the redemptive priest in our place the great high priest whose name is love forever lives and pleads for me. Jesus Christ is the great high priest. The priest who stands in our stead. Not just a priest. The great high priest. Jesus Christ now took our place. So this leads observation, one which clearly shows the connection between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Lord destroyed His firstborn in order to deliver His firstborn. Let me say it again. The Lord destroyed His firstborn, Jesus Christ, in order to deliver His firstborn, His children. We can see this in the Scripture. Jesus is God's firstborn. You can see it, and if you, you need to see it for yourself, 
Look at, and I love these just biblical prophecies just kind of exploding before your eyes. Uh, if you want to see Jesus as God's firstborn, look at Matthew 1.25. Luke 2, verse 7. Colos- uh, Romans 8.29. Colossians 1, verse 15 and 18. Look at Revelation 1.5. I love how it goes all the way to Revelation. The only way that we can be redeemed is if we are treated as the firstborn who has been redeemed. That is, we must be in Christ, his firstborn. There's a sense in which all are related to the firstborn. Either Adam or Christ. Adam was the firstborn of the human race. And then you have Jesus Christ who is the head of God's new creation in humanity. Thomas uh, Goodwin, a Puritan, and reading through some of his stuff is just like reading through a, a really intense manual. Uh, but in his uh, commentary, he's a Puritan from the early 1800s, 1700s, and he wrote in his commentary to, of Ephesians, he said, there are but two men standing before God. Two men. Adam and Christ. And these two men have all other men hanging in their girdles. Not quite sure I like the whole idea of men in girdles, but it's basically they're holding together. These two men are holding all other men in themselves. The difference is that those who are in Adam, those who are in humanity, are still dead in their trespasses and sin. But those who are in Christ have been redeemed from sin. So there's two two types of people in this world. Those who are in Adam and who are dead and dying. And those are the ones that our hearts should be breaking about. Like Mike talked about, or I talked about last week and convicted Mike's heart. That we have neighbors, friends, people across the world who are still in Adam. Who are dying in their trespasses. Are going to hell. If they breathe their last breath, They are eternally separated from God. Eternally. But then there are those who are in Christ Jesus. Who have been redeemed. And because they've been redeemed, they are called to be serving. Called to be proclaiming. They respond to the grace. There's a whole bunch more stuff there. I'm going to move on. But I'm going to move on. The second thing that is noted here, sorry, that was a big thing, but you had to understand that before we can move on. The second thing is that there is a consecrated community. The separation of the firstborn highlights the the high cost of the side of those who are redeemed. The redeemed Israel was not autonomous. They were not by themselves. They were were, uh, saved to serve. They were saved to something. And so it is with the church today. God already owns us by virtue of redemption. But this, there's a text, this text teaches us that He also owns us as well as by the virtue of redemption. So we are His even before being purchased. In that sense, a believer is twice owned. It's because of this that God commands in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that you're 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. So this body that you have is from God in the first place. Redeemed or unredeemed, it is yours from God. And you are not your own. For you were bought with a price. There's a, the twice owned. You were bought. So one was you were, this body you have, it's from God. He made you, He formed you. It's this amazing, mysterious thing that you were created in the womb as precious and beautiful, created in His own image. But then there is those of you who were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which is God's. So since you are God's and you were purchased by God, what are you to do? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. The redemption of the Israelites did not see, did not set them free from all their masters. So just because they were saved from Israel or from Egypt didn't mean like, hey, I'm free to do whatever the heck I want to now. That's not what the kind of redemption that took place. Instead, it set them free to a new master. Alec Matir writes, this teaches us that those who are the particular recipients of the blessings of salvation must accept and fulfill the consecration of life to which salvation calls them. In our day of easy believism, it's important to note that justification that act where God takes the heart of a man, a woman, a child, and changes it so that their position before God is now righteous in Christ. That, that it's important to note that justification and sanctification, that process of being made right, until that day we see Christ face to face, are inseparable. They're inseparable. They are obligations of grace. We cannot be justified without being sanctified. These two aspects are the same side, or two sides of the same coin, justified and sanctified. Just like in salvation, there, there are the twin truths of sanctification and ju uh, justification and sanctification. We are counted righteous. Because of what Jesus Christ we've been paid for, we, we are accounted righteous, but we are also living righteous. And they cannot be separated. There is a definite connection between, with here with the New Testament church. With our redemption comes the responsibility to live as set apart or to be passed over to God. Simply put, justification produces sanctification. Christ gave Himself up for us that He might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto Himself a particular people who are zealous for good works. So you've been redeemed, you've been set apart to be made holy to produce what? We are to be producing zealously good works in our family, in our neighborhood, in our workplace, across the world, we are to be zealous because of the justification that has been made. And importantly, just as there are two tokens to remind the old covenant people of God of this truth, 
circumcision and Passover and the offering of the firstborn. So God has ordained signs for His new covenant people for the same purpose. Circumcision can be paralleled with the new covenant baptism. Passover with the Lord's Supper and the offering of the firstborn with the offering of our first fruits. And all these things are designed to help us remember the obligations of grace that are upon us. And that sounds weird, doesn't it? The obligations of grace. Because when we think about grace, it's like, oh, it's just a free gift from God. It's a free gift. But now there's obligations of grace. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Where does that come from? Come on, Romans where? Thank you. Thank you, Romans 12. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifice. We are to take up our cross and follow Christ. We are, we're not our own, but we were bought with a price. We must therefore live devoted to God, even if that means death. Hear that. Since we've been purchased with a price, we are to live devoted to God, even if that means death. The fact of the matter is that when we are converted, we are immediately consecrated. Immediately consecrated. Immediately set apart, set aside. And therefore, death may be our lot. Period. We need this awareness of what it means to follow Christ. Under the old covenant, God proclaims, it is mine. And that is the issue to which we must submit. And thank God we are His. Here's the third one. Catechized children. How many of you were raised in a church community where you heard the word catechism? How many of you kind of shudder at those very words? You know, some of you kind of go, oh, catechism. I remember sitting with the elders, and, uh, and it was in my last year of catechism, sitting with the pastor where we were kind of taught in a kind of a rote way, to be able to remember these questions and answered. And this is the third issue that is just absolutely worthy of our observation here in this text about the issue of catechized children. And some of you are going to kind of revolt at it because you have a lot of junk and a lot of issues from the past. But let me throw up a definition, Connor, of what catechize means. To instruct someone in the principles of the Christian religion by means of question and answer, typically using a catechism. In verse 8, God commands this. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. There's a certain telling of response back and forth. Verses 14 through 15. And when in time it comes, your son asks, what does this mean? The parents should be able to say, listen, here's what it means. And I want you to know what it means because in time you are going to have a son or you are going to have a daughter who's going to be asking the exact same questions. What does this mean? Let me tell you what this means. I want you to have, I want you to know what you believe and why you believe it. I want you to know why we're doing what we're doing because it is critical to your spiritual formation. 
You're maturing in Christ. It is critical that you know. So just as the Passover, just as with the Passover feast, so the consecrating of the firstborn was to be a teaching opportunity. In each case, the fathers were responsible for the recounting and the explanation of why they were doing this as a means to teach their children what God has done. In other words, these were ordinances which God gave to His people so that they might faithfully and fruitfully preach the gospel to their children. In, in verse 8, the, the son is probably in reference to the firstborn. Therefore, the scene or the intent is something like this. Father saying to his son, over the next seven days we'll be doing something very special, son. For something very significant happened on that night. The firstborn, like yourself, would have been destroyed if it had not been for the grace of Yahweh. Do you understand that, son? You see, the Lord destroyed all the firstborn of Egypt, but in our case, we were allowed to sacrifice a lamb in the place of the firstborn. In fact, son, even though you were a baby that night, had it not been for God's grace, you too would have even died. Isn't God good? So at the birth of the firstborn, the same opportunities would arise to teach God's salvation and therefore His ownership. Hear this clearly. Children need to be taught intentionally, not just casually. Children need to be taught and parents need to be reminded to whom the children belong. They need to be taught. Children need to be taught. And parents need to be reminded to whom these children really belong. Psalm uh, 127 verse 3 in the NSAB says this, Children are a gift of the Lord. The children that we have as a, as a church community that you may have as parents are a gift of the Lord. They're not yours. They are to be properly stewarded. The New Testament continuity kind of plays out in the implementation of Ephesians 6, 1-4. through 4. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. So there, do you see what's going on? Parents, are, are you recounting and explaining the gospel to your children? Are, do your children hear you speaking of the absolute remarkable work of God in salvation in Him even saving you? Do they see you fulfilling your obligations of grace? Do they see you fulfilling the responsibilities that just flow from redemption? Do they observe you embracing 
the means of grace were rejecting me. As a pastor, and I'm going to tell you, uh, this is just kind of being honest, this is something that we struggle with as a family, is the intentional, you know, we're, we're a ministry family, right? Executive director at a camp, Christian camp, we're a pastor of a, a, a Christian church, obviously. Um, and our children should be, you know, just ca- they should be picking this up, right? But there is to be an intentionality. So as a pastor, in my failing, and in my strong admonishment from, cur- from Scripture, I want to encourage you. Use any material that is available to you. Be intentional in catechizing your children. There's a ton of stuff out there. There's uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism for study classes. If you don't, this catechism is a questions and answer. What is the chief end of man? Exactly. So some of you know it. So, but our children should be able to say, what is your chief end? My chief end as a, a little boy or a little girl is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. So that, that's Westminster Catechism, question and answer number one. Heidelberg Catechism. There's another great study guide here. There's a uh, from Star Mead, comforting, comforting the hearts, teaching minds. We are instructing their minds, not just warming their hearts. We're instructing them about the covenant that God has made, that you are in, you are through your baptism, you are part of a covenant community, and it is critical that you respond to the grace, or you will be set apart for destruction. Respond. Whom do you serve this day? As for me and my house, we serve the Lord. So we live as covenant people and we teach our children as part of this covenant community to respond, yes, to Jesus and His grace. There's another ecumenical creeds and reformed confessions. There's another book by Jason Halopoulos. And if you are really want to be vigorous, this is a good book. It's about a, a neglected grace. Family worship in the Christian home. There, there are tons of resources out there. And it is critical that by all means that you take your children to Sunday school. It's critical that you involve them in the children's ministry of the church. And these ministries are designed to assist you as parents in the task of raising your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. But they never, ever, ever take place or replace the parental responsibility. We will continue to offer children's ministry and we are praying about what a youth ministry looks like and we're behind the ball on that. I know that. And some people have get, gotten on our kids. What are you doing for our kids? What are we doing for your kids? The question comes back to you. What are you doing for your children? Instruct your children in the Lord. It's a command. Fathers, pull up your pants and be a husband and a father. Instruct your children in the Lord. Disciple your children so that they, when they ask the questions, you can respond intelligently and biblically and theologically and you can walk through these things. Our children, listen, if you are not living the gospel out in your home, 
chances are very, very, very slim that the efforts of a Sunday school or a youth ministry will avail too much. God gave the nuclear family for a purpose. He gave the church for a purpose. It starts at the home. I love the story of John Patton, a missionary to the New Hebrides Islands, and he recalled as a child hearing his father in his prayer closet. He actually had a prayer closet. Hearing his father in his prayer closet weeping over the souls of his children and crying to God to save them. Our children need to feel the reality of God's grace in their lives. It's not something that ought to remain unspoken in the home. We ought to use every opportunity that is available to speak to our children of the wonderful grace of God. And then we need to call them as parents. We need to call them to respond to our covenant-making and our covenant-keeping God. You have heard the good news of our God. And you are in baptism. You are set apart. Will you respond to this covenant of grace? Yes or no? And continually call our children, not peer pressure, not guilting them, but calling them. Listen, isn't this beautiful what God has done? What is God saying to you? Who do you believe in? It has been observed by many that the church is always one generation away from extinction. We cannot presume on God's grace. We, we must be faithful in teaching the next generation of the wonderful works of God. May we, as a church, married with children, unmarried, without children, may we as a church be faithful with our responsibility with the gospel in our homes and in our churches. Four, hopefully this will be a little shorter. Conscientious commitment. There is to be this commitment, a continual corporate remembrance of this redemption from generation to generation. You see how they did it? They even did little little physical things. You know, It shall be a sign on your hand as a memorial between your eyes. And the law of the Lord shall be on your mouth. You know, so there's these, these physical things. For with the strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall remember, therefore, this, this statute at its appointed time from year to year. And by insinuation, from year to year to year to year to year to year. And then in verses 9 and 10, it shall be a mark on your hand or frontlets eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord has brought us out of the land of Egypt. God commanded the Passover to be a memorial of what he has done for the people of Israel on that night in Egypt. It is for that reason that there was to be an annual celebration of the feast. Remember this. God knew. God knew that his people are prone to forget His grace. And indeed, they were. If, if you, you know enough about this story of Israel, they, what do they do? They start complaining during their, their wanderness, uh, 
wilderness wandering, they start complaining. Gosh, what, wasn't it always better in Egypt? You brought us out here to die. Come on, why bring us out here? We're going to be a bunch of dried up skeletons out here. Why? And so what did God do? He instructed them to observe this feast as an annual remembrance of His grace. And God expected at the birth of each firstborn child that they would again celebrate the Passover night. You remember? Having our firstborn child. Every time a birthday comes around, for that firstborn child, you're going, this child should have been devoted to destruction. But he is now devoted to God's grace. He's part of this community community of faith. And speaking on this issue, Alec Matir, throw up that next slide for me. Remembering is very important in the Indeed, it is a striking thing that looking back and keeping the past in mind is probably just as much stressed in the biblical record as looking forward. Rejoicing in hope and living in expectation is. Forgetfulness and defection. Remembrance and victory are pairs of inseparable biblical concepts. Remembering. Elsewhere, the same writer writes this. A serious lesson, just leave it there. The serious lesson of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread is that remembering the great central acts of God on which their faith rests demands a larger and more concentrated, uh, concentrated allocation of time and more focused ordering of their schedules than is now usually the case. They had to set apart time to work on remembering. How important is it for us to remember, to meditate on God's grace in our lives? It is critical. Absolutely critical. We are prone to forget. Some of you can't even remember what you're supposed to be doing tomorrow or what you did yesterday. Alexander McLaren exhorts us with this. Throw it up there. Let every Christian practice the habit of meditation which in an age of so many books, newspapers, and the distractions of our busy modern life is apt to become obsolete. He wrote that in the 1890s. Like God's people of old, we need to build into our lives the the regular discipline of meditating on God's redemption. Meditating on it. We must force ourselves to remember moment by moment, day by day. We can't simply afford to be lazy when it comes to keeping our hearts fixed upon Christ and on His redeeming work to the degree that we, are discipline, that we discipline ourselves to keep the cross ever before us. To that degree will God's redeeming love motivate our love and motivate our loyalties. The more, more spiritual battles are probably lost through laziness than through lust. More spiritual batters, battles are lost probably through just sheer forgetfulness. So let us meditate frequently on God's Word and on His grace in our lives. 
We need to sit under. Hear me say this, and this is critical for some of you. It is critical that we sit under the consistent teaching of His Word and expose ourselves to to godly men through reading who might emphasize and might remind us of His great works. It is This is not to be legalistic. It is critical that you come together with the body of Christ on a weekly basis. It is critical. It is for your health. You are constantly reminded of the gospel. You're constantly meditating on the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. That's the reason why it says, do not neglect meeting together. Come together. And if you find it easy, man, I just need a Sunday off. That's, that's more of the reason that you need to come to church and to hear the word. I just need a Sunday off. Welcome to the world. In Christianity today, there's even a growing emphasis on just short, sweet sermons that kind of tickle the mind. And churches advertise, and I've seen this, they advertise their services are no more than an hour. And I grew up in a culture of that. And part of it was fear. Because there was a pot roast in, in the slow cooker. And if you're not home by that time, the pot roast is going to be dry. And every pastor knew that you had to be home in an hour. So when they advertised that their services last no more than an hour, it normally meant that the, the sermon was 15 minutes at best. But surely, we can't be stirred to remembrance if our worship is hurried, right? Just get done. Giddy up. Years ago, and I won't mention his name, a young man said to me, Paul, I know I'm growing in the Lord because I don't find that I go to the church as often. I suppose he must have really grown in the Lord because today he doesn't even darken the doors of the church at all. And of course, this isn't a sign of spiritual growth, but it's a sign of spiritual stagnation. We tend to stagnate if we do not take ourselves in hand and stir ourselves up to remembrance. And praise God that he has ordained corporate worship, gathered worship services as a means of grace to help us remember his great works and his grace in our lives. I look forward to this. It's a lot of work to do this. But you know what? I I look forward to it because I hope that I'm stirring you up to remember, oh, what a great God. Look how he loves us. What am I called to do now? So here's the last one, the gospel connection. This is it. This is the shortest one. All scripture ultimately points towards Christ, right? And in studying this text, we do not want to miss the gospel connection. Jesus was and is the firstborn of God who was both the redeemer and the redeemed I know that sounds weird but look at Psalm 31 verse 5 of how Jesus was the redeemer and the redeemed Psalm 31 5 not going to go into it because I said at the end that is he both delivered sinners from becoming by becoming sin and its curse therefore he needed to be redeemed from death and it occurred by his resurrection. He was rescued from death because he was righteous. 
And therefore, the redeemed became the redeemer. So let me ask you this. Have you personally made the connection between the cross of Christ and your need to be redeemed? To be delivered? To be rescued from the wrath of God against you as a sinner? The Lord Jesus is the only Lamb who can redeem. Have you been redeemed and I pray today would be your day of deliverance and I pray that this moment may be the moment that you embrace the Lamb of God as the Redeemer of your soul if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ you will be saved and that's a connection that you need. Believe on Jesus Christ and all that he has done. And you will be saved. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, I thank you that you have so inspired the Word of God and so crafted it beautifully that it comes alive when we open it and it teaches us and it points us to Christ. And it also points to our, our deep need for a substitute because we are riddled with sin to our very DNA. And there is nothing in us that can bring about your grace or your mercy, that could avoid the wrath of God. But God, but God who is rich in mercy, who loves us with the great love with which he's loved us, saved us. So God, I thank you how we can see this, this story of redemption, not only for the children of Israel, but how this story is also the same story of our lives, that we are found embedded in this story. Lord, may we be found in Christ, and may we be responding extravagantly to the grace of God. Lord, may we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, ready to put to death in our lives the sin that so quickly entangles us, ready to put to death any of the, the lusts and the, the struggles and the deep desires to be idolatrous. And Lord, and Lord, may we become alive more and more every day by your power through cooperating through sanctification. So God, may we today be willing to die as living sacrifices, wholly devoted to you, however you call us, wherever you call us to, for the sake of your kingdom and 
for your glory's sake. And we pray this in the mighty, mighty name of Jesus. And all God's people said,